Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Human factors. Yes, it is a, well, it can be anyway, a tricky topic and one that can create some confusion. And that's why on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences and I take a deeper dive into some of the nuances of human factors. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear, coming to you from the wonderful Greenlight Studio in beautiful Indianapolis, Indiana. Today, I we, we've, we've talked a lot about topics that, that are kind of important and relevant and timely, and that's what we try to do on, on the, the podcast. And one of the topics that I'm just going to confess creates a lot of confusion. I, think, I hear a lot of comments, a lot of discussion on this, is this, this topic of human factors. And yeah, we've done a few uh, other pieces here and there, content-wise, webinar-wise. But today I've got Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences, and we're going to do a deeper dive into human factors testing. So, Mike, welcome. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure to speak with you and your audience. So, you know, there's, we, we, you and I have talked uh, uh, quite a few times. There's like this Venn diagram, so to speak, between design controls and risk and human factors and clinicals and this and that. And, and I think we'll get into a little bit of that today. But why don't we just start right away? Like, let's, where did this topic of human factors testing requirements, where did it even come from? Well, that's a great question, John. And thanks for the opportunity to take a deeper dive because, uh, you know, we both hear lots of people talking about human factors testing, but uh, really they talk about the the most uh, basic, the, the, the most simplistic kind of things. And, I, and there are a lot of much more significant issues that I think we as an industry need to understand in order to deal with. And one of them is where did this whole idea of human factors testing requirements come from? Because as you remember, uh, John, uh, more than about a decade or so ago, it was pretty uncommon for medical device companies to do this kind of testing, and it was absolutely not required or expected by the FDA. So the root cause of all of the human factor testing that we're doing today, um, the precipitating event, if you will, is the infusion pump fiasco that happened uh, uh, about a decade ago now. Uh, long story short, infusion pumps have been one of the most recall-plagued medical devices uh, in the last uh, decade. Um, FDA received some 56,000 reports of adverse events linked to infusion pumps, and those led to about 87 infusion pumps that were recalled in the United States for, uh, for safety reasons. This all resulted in obviously more rigorous usability testing requirements for medical devices across the board. Um, another way to think about it, John, is uh, FDA has only put out six guidances in the area of human factors testing. Interestingly enough, five of the six guidances have come out in the last two years, since 2016. So this yeah. is a relatively recent phenomenon. Now, now don't get me wrong. Um, I think all 
companies should have a responsibility, just basic engineering, to do human factor or usability or ergonomic testing on their devices. There's no question about it. But this is one of those situations where, unfortunately, there were devices out there that led to problems. And uh, this is where all of this came from, kind of like the breast implant fiasco that led to the biocompatibility testing, its uh, requirements. It's one of these watershed moments in the in the history of the medical device industry. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting that that, uh, that fact that six of FDA's guidances on human factors, that five of them have been since 2016, even though this this issue happened well over a decade ago. So that's, that's kind of an interesting thing. So clearly, I, I mean, I'm speculating, of course, here, that even though this this issue surfaced and 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 came to to kind of a, a you know a precipice some years ago on the topic of human factors, which led to that first guidance document, it, it's usually at least again it's it's hyperbole a bit, but my observation is whenever you see uh, increased guidance in an area, it's it's a subtle way, or maybe a not so subtle way of of FDA and other regulatory bodies saying, hey, you guys aren't getting it. Here's more guidance for you, um, but uh, that's a that's a whole different topic. But um, I, well, I, not not to be overly negative, John, but it's actually um, even a little bit worse because in spite of all of these uh, changes and and lessons to be learned and all of these guidances that have come out uh, in the last several years, infusion pumps continue to generate a substantial portion of class one recalls even today. Yeah. So I would like to think that we as an industry have really learned and improved, but unfortunately, there's still an awful lot of learning and improving that needs to be done. Yeah, and and I'll go down uh, the rabbit hole just a little bit further, but infusion infusion pump issues have also created some some other uh, required practices from companies that are in that space, like in the areas of use cases for risk management and all that sort of thing. So. You know, it's uh, there are other segments of the medical device industry that should take a moment to kind of look at the infusion pump uh, segment of of the industry and glean some lessons. We talk about being proactive, reactive, and CAPAs and that sort of thing in previous conversations. This is one of those opportunities, folks, where you can be proactive. You can see what's happening in this particular device segment, uh, observe, learn, and and maybe apply some lessons learned to what you're doing. All right, so let's let's continue on you're, this. You're, deep. you're exactly right, John. Yeah. You're, uh, sorry, just just one last point. You're exactly right. Um, uh, one of my frustrations with some folks in this industry is that uh, people tend to take a pretty myopic view of the universe. In other words, uh, of course, probably only a small fraction of our audience actually works on infusion pumps. So right. some people listening to our conversation might be thinking, gee, I'm working on a, on a catheter or a hip implant or something else. Why the heck do I need to, 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 to know something about infusion pumps? Well, mm-hmm. those who forget their history are doomed to repeat it. There's an awful lot of similarities here that apply to medical devices across the board. And so we really do need to take a bigger picture view, a more holistic view in order to truly improve what we're doing. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's uh, let's continue our journey into this deeper dive of human factors testing. I I think there are uh, there's certainly a confusion point for a lot of folks. Uh, you know, some people misunderstand or maybe even misapply 
what a clinical trial is versus a usability study. Are these the same thing? Are these different things? So maybe share a little bit of, of, of thoughts uh, about where they're the same and where they're different. Well, uh, it's a great question, John, and you're right. In the past, there has been a a big difference between a clinical trial versus a human factor or a usability study. But nowadays, the lines are becoming blurrier and blurrier all the time. In fact, in some cases, the human factor study and the clinical study is one and the same. Here's the way I like to kind of differentiate between the two. A clinical trial focuses on the patient, whereas the usability study, that focuses on the user. So to use, for example, a a simple surgical instrument as a metaphor, a scalpel, Uh, if we were going to do a clinical trial on the scalpel, the focus would be, is the scalpel able to cut through the tissue uh, without causing you know, excessive trauma or bleeding and so on. Uh, if we were going to do a usability study on that same scalpel, that would focus on the surgeon's ability to use the device. In other words, does it fit well into his or her hand? Are they able to manipulate it in order to meet the objectives in the, in the high-level labeling, the intended use of being able to cut through certain kinds of tissue without being overly traumatic, and so on and so on. Um, so that's been the, the differentiator uh, in the past. The clinical trial focuses on the patient, whereas the usability study focuses on the user. Okay, that's that's a good distinction. And there are times where the the end user and the patient may be the same thing, <laughs> for sure. I mean, there's a lot of products and I and home home use uh, products, uh, you know, wearables, all these sorts of things uh, start to really blur the line or maybe fuse the 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 user and the patient as really being one and the same. You're exactly right, John. Those lines are becoming more and more blurry all the time because, as you and I have talked about in the past, we have more and more devices both on the market as well as under development where the user and the patient is, in fact, one of the same. I purposely chose the scalpel as a metaphor to to illustrate uh, historically the difference between the, the clinical trial and the usability study. Obviously, um, that metaphor is not really appropriate here because uh, most people are not going to use a scalpel to do surgery on themselves. But there are a litany of medical devices where the user and the um, uh, and the patient is the same. And in that particular case, the uh, usability study and the clinical trial is one and the same. As a matter of fact, I have several medical device companies that I work with that really do not like to uh, talk about doing a clinical trial, uh, although they are doing a human factor study. And I often say to them, well, since your device is going to be used by the actual patient on themselves or perhaps by a caregiver, um, isn't this really a clinical trial? You know, a Shakespeare said a rose by any other name still smells as sweet. So bottom line, the, 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 the lines here are becoming more fuzzy all the time. Yeah, for sure. For sure. This um Next, I think you'll get a kick out of this next thing I'm going to ask you. Um, I, uh, I I know this enough. I know you enough to know, or well enough to know that that 
you have a strong opinion about things like um, instructions for use or directions for use or user manuals, whatever you want to call that. And I've seen uh, and I've heard stories of a lot of companies when they do like usability and human factor studies. Um, one of the steps in that that study is for the operator or the user uh, to read the DFU as part of the human factor study. So I, um, it's a bit of a, I know you got a, an opinion. I know you have a strong opinion about this. So what do you think about that scenario? I'm going to, Mike, I want you to do a, a human factor uh, study. I want you to be a participant in that. You're one of my users, but before you use my product, I need you to read the manual. Well, John, uh, you do know me fairly well. I do have a, a, a strong opinion, but I would also say I have a realistic opinion because I hope the vast majority of, of people in this industry uh, would uh, admit that when a, a, a physician or a nurse or even a patient takes uh, one of our medical devices out of the box, one of the very first things that they do is take that directions for use, that DFU, and simply throw it in the trash. Um, and the same thing happens in the drug world with package inserts as well. So, yes, I have a strong feel, uh, opinion, but it is, in my opinion, a realistic one. So let me share with you, uh, John, uh, uh, a scenario that I had uh, not long ago. I was invited to speak at a conference, and coincidentally, the person speaking just before me was describing the, a, uh, a usability study, and she was in, you know, discussing the inclusion and exclusion criteria of that study which is, by the way, right out of the clinical trial world, back to usability study versus uh, clinical trial. Anyway, she was describing the inclusion and exclusion criteria, and she said that one of the in, uh, inclusion-exclusion criteria in their study was that the surgeon, this happened to be a surgical device, had to read the DFU before they used the device. And I wanted to ask her a question during this conference because I wanted to facilitate a discussion here. I said, you realize that now you have totally invalidated your whole usability study because we all know that the vast majority of people do not do that. And she, she basically said, uh, yes, Mike, you're correct. However, it passed mustard at the FDA. So <laughs> this is what I'm... This, and, and, I think and, I was and, there. And, and you're, I, I, I think I was there at that time, but I, I remember uh, that exchange, and and uh, it it was interesting that that response is like we're not just doing things to check a box, folks. I mean, we we got to get out of this uh, this you know just being blind as far as what we're doing. I mean, passing muster with FDA. I mean, good good for you, but but did you really did you really prove uh, that your product is is usable? Did you re really do a good job of of human factors with that scenario. That's exactly right, John. And and uh, you know this kind of begs the question: What good is doing a test, whether it's a human factor study or anything else, if it's not realistic of the real world? And regrettably, a lot of the testing that we do is not realistic of the real world. So speaking of real world, because unlike some of my regulatory friends who seem to live in a theoretical world where people read and follow uh, uh, labeling instructions. I live in the real world. So here's my uh, advice based on my real world uh, experience. If you're going to design a human factor study, um, it's actually incredibly simple. It's only two steps. Step number one, give the user your device. And step number two, shut up. 
don't say anything, don't do anything, and just simply watch what it is yeah. that they do. And if one of the things they do is take your device and take the DFU out of the package and throw it right in the trash, then note that down. And by the way, you and I have talked many times about the risk mitigation strategy. Uh, if they toss the DFU into the trash, you should automatically include that in your risk mitigation strategy. One of the risks yeah. that you should consider is what if they don't read the instructions? I don't know about you, John, but I've not seen too many risk mitigation strategies or risk management plans where people explicitly say, what is the risk if the person does not read the DFU? In fact, I've seen quite the opposite. I've seen a lot of people shove their risk mitigations and say, oh, we're going to put that in the DFU. We're going to put that on the label. And and folks, this is, um, you know, the, the topic of risk, this is, we're starting to see there, there's obviously a relationship between, you know, design controls and risk, even more so as we go into this deeper dive of, of human factors. But risk is one of those things that is, is uh, this, this particular topic is, has been uh, very much contested and debated and, and discussed in a lot of other circles. But, but Putting something in a DFU as a risk control, as a risk mitigation, 999 times out of 1,000 is, is, uh, is a poor idea. Uh, it's just that's not an effective mitigation. I could not agree more, John. And this is one of the reasons why, although I don't uh, completely agree with their opinion on this, but this is one of the reasons why it, the ISO says that labeling should not be your primary uh, means of mitigating risk. Um, I don't go quite that so far, but anyway, the point is that one of the reasons why ISO is making that recommendation is because, as I said, we all know that most people don't read it. That's exactly exactly right. So let's uh, let's continue on our journey on this deeper dive. Um, you know, there's obviously products uh, that we're developing. Sometimes they're used by trained professional medical professionals, um, surgeons, anesthesiologists, what have you. And and then there, you know, as we mentioned a moment ago, sometimes there are products that are being that we're developing that are used by patients. You know, possibly even in a patient's home. So how does our human factor testing differ for these devices that may be used by trained professionals versus, uh, you know, the layperson and the common everyday human being? Well, you know, John, that's a great question. And regrettably, at least from a regulatory perspective, there is not much of a difference between those two scenarios, devices used by a trained medical profession, professional, a, a surgeon or a, a physician or a nurse versus a layperson in their home or somewhere else. Um, as a matter of fact, of those guidances that I mentioned earlier, there's really very, very little differentiation between those two scenarios. But I've said many, many times that Although human factor testing is important for medical devices across the board, it's even more important for devices that are going to be used by a layperson as opposed to a trained medical professional. And the logic of that should be fairly obvious. You know, a, 
uh, a physician or a surgeon, uh, presumably graduated medical school and, you know, knows how to use that particular device or has experience with similar devices. And by the way, not to be facetious, but I'm, you know, I mentioned that purposely that, you know, uh, we're assuming that they have graduated medical school and they know what they're doing. Um, I used to teach medical, my, medical school myself back in the day, and I was constantly reminded of the old joke, what do you call the person that graduates last in their class in medical school? <laughs> doctor. You call them doctor. <laughs> uh, that's right. But the same thing can be said for engineers and attorneys and for regulatory professionals as that's well. Right. So, that's right. So bottom line, I think that um, we have to be even more cautious uh, in terms of our usability for products that are going to be using, used by a lay user, even though this detail is not specified in the guidance. And coming back to the labeling, I think the solution to a lot of these problems, John, is not from the regulatory or the labeling perspective, but from the design perspective. Totally. In my opinion, in my opinion, a good design means that the person should not have to read any label or uh, directions for use or something like that. As a matter of fact, I I've, I've say to my, my wife sometimes jokingly, if I buy a product and have to read the instructions that come with it, then some engineer did not do their job. So yeah. uh, anyway. Well, and, and it's, it's ironic a little bit because, you know, engineers are, are largely – uh, the, the the resource that is the most in, uh, involved in a product design process, <clears throat> and um, I like you, I am an engineer, and and I I go to the I go to the counseling sessions every week uh, for my engineering. <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, kind of a an engineering joke. Some of you may get that, but anyway, um, uh, <laughs> I don't read the directions. I did. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't read the directions either. Whatever I. I purchase something that requires some assembly and it's ironic if i as engineer designing a medical device say oh well we'll just put that in the instructions when i know deep down people aren't going to read that because i don't read it you know so engineer uh, here's a tip uh, imagine that you're the person using the product and you got to separate yourself a little bit because obviously you have a strong bias you designed the product of course you know how it works but maybe you give it to one of your uh, engineering peers who maybe is a little less uh, involved or a little less experienced with the thing that you're developing and you hand them the the, the DFU and watch them you know kind of look at it and then toss it to the side and try to figure it out uh, so there's a lot of things that you can do from a usability standpoint before you involve patients and end users. And there's a lot of things that you should do from a usability standpoint long before you put your product in the end user's hands. So keep that in mind. Mike, there's a, there's a, a, a thing that always confuses people and it's around sample size. You know, how many products do I need to do for, for this? And how many uh, samples do I need for this test and that test? And, and the human factors area is certainly in one of those areas as well. Uh, the the guidance, human factors guidance, talks about an N of 15. So where in the world did this come from? Well, indeed, that is a very good question, John. Um, while I do give kudos to FDA for putting a suggested number in there, I think overall it's causing more confusion or perhaps even more damage than it's solving. And the reason is a lot of people don't ask that question of where did that 15 come from? 
simply put, it's just another a, a number. There's nothing special about it. So it really, you know, the short answer to every question in regulatory affairs, John, as you know, is it depends. It depends on your technology. It depends on how new or how well established it is, how similar it is to other devices. Um, it depends on the risk. It depends on uh, a, a number of different things. So in some cases, the sample size might be much larger than 15. In other cases, it might even be smaller than 15. I've gone into the FDA and successfully argued that in this particular case, maybe using only five uh, users uh, would suffice. Um, as, as long as we have a good understanding of the range of variability, then that's what's what's most important. And to uh, you know, to make a comparison back to clinical trials that we talked about before, um, there's tons and tons of guidance uh, about clinical trials, but you'll never see a number in there. A suggested number of patients is X. It just simply doesn't exist. So I find it interesting that uh, that in the uh, in the human factors world, uh, we use this uh, n equal fifteen almost as gospel, almost as, you know, coming from, from uh, you know, uh, a higher power. But in the clinical trial world, we don't. Yeah, I know. It is um, it is interesting, that, that sample size thing. So, folks, uh, uh, the, the nugget here is uh, use that as sort of a, a guide, so to speak. It is guidance. Um, but any whatever your sample size that, that you're uh, proposing, it needs to be you need to have a, a rationale, a justification, an explanation to to corroborate that 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 total number of of and uh, your human factors testing that, that that's appropriate. Um, so do support that with with you know the appropriate rationale. You know, I just uh, you're exactly right, John. This is another one of these examples where the number that you choose really does not matter at all. Because whether you choose five or fifteen or one hundred and fifty, somebody can criticize you for it. And as you and I have talked about before, John, uh, FDA's most important job when they're doing their job, and they don't always do their job, but what their most important job is to be critical of everything. So if we come in as to the FDA as a company and we say the sky is blue, their job is to say, okay, prove it. And then our job is to actually prove it. If we say that we're going to use five or 15 or 150 or whatever the number is, it's our responsibility to say, here's the number we're using. And more importantly, this is why we're using this number as opposed to some other number. All right. We're, we're chugging right along, folks. I got Mike Drews, uh, president of Vascular Sciences, joining me today, and we're doing a deeper dive on human factors testing and what that all means to you. And we've got a few more topics that we're going to dive into today, but I, I do want to uh, remind you all that if if this is something that you're interested in and you want to learn more about it, uh, be sure to reach out to Mike Drews at Vascular Sciences if you know you want to understand how human factors and design controls and risk, how to manage that and and do so in a, a simple, easy way. I would encourage you to visit www.greenlight.guru, learn more about the Greenlight Guru Go platform and how this can help you with your medical device product development activities. So, Mike, continuing on, um, final human factors testing. Um, what does that mean? And does it have to be done on a, quote, final device? 
<laughs> well, John, that's that's a, a a great question, and it's a question right out of the de- design controls, as you and I have talked about before. We are supposed to, at least theoretically, do our final PNV testing on our final uh, device. Um, but the reality is that doesn't always happen. As a matter of fact, many times it does not happen. Um, and so the short answer is, no, we do not have to do final testing, including HF testing, on our quote-unquote final device. However, if that's going to be our strategy, then we have to be able to be prepared to justify any differences between the device that we do our final testing on and the actual final device itself. And we have to be able to explain why any of those differences won't impact the, uh, the, 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 the testing that we did. In other words, if we were to repeat final HF testing on our final device, we would see no difference. Sometimes that's easy to do. Other times that's not easy to do. So I think if it's possible to do our final testing on our final device, then obviously we should do it. But sometimes it's not possible. And I've seen many situations. I'm involved with a a company right now. uh, They're they're working actually on a combination product, and they want to do the final HF testing on a hand-assembled version of the device uh, because the, the, the combination product, rather, because the final product is going to be assembled via an automated, uh, uh, you know, manufacturing system, but they don't have the money, they don't have the resources to, to develop that automated system uh, prior to getting this onto the market. So we can certainly do that, um, but once again, we have to be, be able to show that the difference between our, in this case, our hand-assembled product and our automated-assembled pro- uh, product uh, is is not significant. Yeah, I mean, and that's a, a key thing. Sometimes the way we, uh, our plan for mass manufacturing of our product might be a little bit different than what we're doing during the design and development process. And if those differences matter, like if I'm going to to build something by hand versus automate uh, the the manufacturing when I when I go to market, if those differences matter in that product. Then you've, you're answering your own question. You probably need to consider uh, doing human factors on on the the more final version. But if they don't, uh, and you can explain why with with strong rationale, then then maybe they don't matter. So just keep that in mind. You know, it, this is all about. Um, critical thinking. This is all about you know, making uh, a clear explanation. And don't just do this in your head. Remember that that um, you know you may not look at this for another six months, and, and you're going to come back to this one day, and you're going to go, "Why do we do this?" You know. So when you have uh, an explanation of why you did something documented, then it jogs your memory. I know if I don't write something down. A few months from now, there's a pretty good chance that I'm not going to remember it. So, so that documentation is important for you. And of course, you know, one day, some some point in time, others, i.e., FDA, ISO auditors, whomever, may also be looking at your documentation to to support what you're doing as well. So, just 
whatever decisions you make, do document them and make sure they make sense. Don't just try to cut. Well, I hate to say it, John, but, uh, but one of the signs of, of getting older is forgetting things. Mike. So, uh, this is, you know, I have to do the same thing. Mike, (laughs) writing uh, things down. I always said it's not a function of age. It's because of how busy I am, but, but I think you might be right. It could be an age factor in there too. (laughs) Uh, all right. So let's, uh, let's continue on our journey. As you can, probably tell folks we're moving through you know the the development process and now we're getting closer and closer to that point in time where, where we're getting ready to go to market with our products so what are the the human factor requirements for like post market surveillance specifically for things like uh, 510k or de novo devices is this something that's required and, and if not should it be Well, that's another terrific question, John. And here in the United States, anyway, according to current regulation, uh, it's very, very vague. This is one of the things that is, in fact, changing in the EU with the new MDRs going into effect even as we speak. And that is the EU is uh, expecting to see more and more post-market surveillance data, whether it's clinical data or human factor data, even for lower risk in the U.S., the equivalent of class one or class two devices, which I think overall is a good thing, even though some companies would argue it's more burdensome to them. Uh, I think it's a good thing because uh, we do have an obligation, if not a regulatory one, certainly a professional one, uh, or maybe even an ethical one, to keep an eye on our products uh, after they're cleared or approved and being used on the market. Uh, so, But here in the United States, there are not um, rigorous, there are not well-defined post-market surveillance requirements, uh, uh, specifically with regard to human factor testing. But I would argue that in an indirect way, we basically have to do that anyway, because as, as, as we've talked about before, John, if there are problems with medical devices that lead to recalls or something like that, as part of the investigation, we should try to tease out the root cause. And if the root cause is uh, user error, usability in some fashion, then we would find out about it that way. But, you know, simply put, John, my recommendation is regardless of geography, regardless of if we happen to be doing business here in the United States or in the EU or some other places in the world, uh, I really think that we, as a as a responsible manufacturer, have a responsibility to keep an eye on our products even after they're approved and on the market, including usability. Yeah, for sure. It's very, very important that we always keep our finger on the pulse and we understand what's, what's happening with our products. Uh, so... Um, Mike, let's 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 wrap up our our conversation on the deeper dive into into human factors today. Let's and there's folks where there's so much more as you can tell just by the the depth of this conversation so far today. There's a lot of different parts and pieces of this, and and um, you know we we may explore this in future uh, podcasts and future uh, topics and content and all that sort of thing. But let's wrap it up with this this last topic today. Because I know there are a lot of uh, companies that are dealing with combination products, you know, whether they be pharmaceutical companies who are brand new to medical device or device companies who are, you know, doing uh, different types of combination products. This, this is definitely a, a hot area of, of the device segment. But <clears throat> what are some of the, maybe you can talk about a few of the challenges uh, from a human factors perspective for people who are 
developing and manufacturing combination products? Well, once again, John, that's a terrific topic to dive into a little bit further. Um, as you and perhaps some of your audience knows, I've been working in combination products for more than 20 years, longer than most people even heard that phrase. And Health Canada uh, hired me several years ago to help them develop their official Canadian policy for combination products. So this is an area where I really do know something about. Although there has been guidance specifically coming out on usability or human factors for combination products, in my opinion, it's really not necessary because there's nothing unique to combination products, uh, certainly from a usability perspective. My best advice, and this is sort of combination products 101 to me, is to simply deconstruct the products. So in other words, if you're working on a drug device combination product, Deconstruct the product. Look at the device component by itself. Look at the drug component by itself. And look at what are the usability issues, what are the potential harms and risks and so on for each individual component. But then don't stop there. Uh, then you have to combine them and you have to look at the usability and risks uh, of the entire system once we combine them together. And once, once again, John, this should not sound unfamiliar to you or your audience. This idea is right out of the design controls. The design totally. controls, when it comes to validation, reminds us that we need to validate the product and we have to validate the process, how we make it. But the design controls fall short, in my opinion. They don't remind people to validate the product and the process together. So, you know, this is another one of those examples where people say we need more guidance, we need more regulation. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's the solution. I think we have plenty of regulation, maybe even too much. Um, but what I think is we need people understanding the intent of the regulation, not taking a literal interpretation of those words, but trying to understand the intent of that regulation so that then we can apply it in lots of different situations, like, for example, um, combination products. And one last uh, piece of small advice for anybody in the audience working specifically in combination products. Um, you, as you hinted at at the beginning of this question, John, in the device world, specifically CDRH, the device part of FDA, they have a lot of experience with usability testing. On the drug and the biologic side, if you're dealing with CEDAR or CBER, uh, with all due respect to my many FDA friends, they don't have nearly as much uh, human factors testing uh, experience, uh, although some of them think they do. So I see, and I've, I have a, another combo product that I'm involved with right now, where I see the CEDAR folks being tremendously burdensome when it comes to what they're looking for for the human factors testing, uh, asking us to do things that in my professional opinion as a biomedical engineer are totally unnecessary. And yeah. what we've had to do is we've had to work with the CDRH folks to kind of get them to say, hey, drug people, you might not, you might know a lot about drugs, but uh, maybe not yeah. so much about usability. <laughs> well, and, and, so and that's, this is that's a game. A it's a really good point, and, and this is uh, it's a good way to kind of summarize as well. I mean, if you're going to wait for <laughs> the regulatory bodies to tell you what to do, then you may not like the answer. Um, be proactive, folks. You know, come up with a plan for how you uh, plan to address your human factors. You know, that's important. I know that's that's so key, and. 
one of the the uh, other things that I know I'm a fan of and and I know Mike you're a big fan of too is this is an opportunity you know before you get too deep into it and, and start uh, just doing different human factors testing you know this is a great opportunity uh, to to take it to FDA FDA in advance you know maybe via a pre-sub what do you think I think that's obviously a, a excellent advice, John, something that you and I have talked about a number of times in the past. And specifically with regard to the pre-sub, more and more I'm coming to the FDA with pre-subs with companies very, very early in the product development life cycle. Uh, as a matter of fact, in a couple of cases now, we have not even had a prototype. I have literally taken a virtual product, a virtual device, to the FDA in the form of a pre-sub. And perhaps that could be topic of a, of a different discussion, but the reason why I'm bringing it up here is because uh, at that particular point in the development cycle, we probably do not have a fully developed human factor study design and protocol and so on. So in that case, what I usually try to provide is at least what I call a high-level executive summary of Here's, you know, at a, at a very high level, here's what our human factors study is going to look like, at least to give FDA a sense of what direction we're going. And then we can have a conversation about it if they have any feedback. The last thing that I want to do, and I've seen many companies do this, is not bring it up. Because if you don't bring it up, just like if you leave something out of a submission and it gets picked back, FDA has no idea why you didn't bring it up. In other words, did you not bring it up because it's not applicable or did you not bring it up because you simply forgot about it? And, uh, you know, one of my basic strategies, John, is I want to demonstrate very, very uh, strongly, very candidly to my friends on the FDA side of the table that I do know what the heck that I'm doing, that I am a professional, that I know what all of my options are and the advantages and disadvantages. And quite frankly, I have not forgotten everything. But if the product is early in the development cycle, I will say to them, this product is still under development. We not we have not gotten to the point of a design freeze. And some of the questions that you might have, uh, we don't have answers yet to, but they're definitely on our radar. They're definitely on our yeah. list. And we're going to come back to you when we get to that particular point on the road and, and address them. Exactly. It's um, it's definitely something that, that you got to be aware of, folks, and, and, you know, plan, 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 and, and communicate. Uh, you know, the more that you're engaging with the FDA, and I, I know the the old school people are like, "Oh, that's crazy," but no, I'm telling you that that this is an opportunity, the the best opportunity for you to be uh, successful. If if uh, FDA is involved with your discussions and you have a good plan and you can defend your plan, that's that's only going to help you and and the success of your product in the marketplace. So. Folks, I want to thank Mike. And Mike, I know you're a very passionate uh, person, especially on topics regulatory related. And, and clearly, uh, I, we discovered today that you're a passionate person on human factors and, and you know your stuff. So folks, if you have those human factors questions, wanted a little bit of guidance and direction, I do encourage you to reach out to Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences. Uh, and again, this is... Um, this has been John Spearier, the host and founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru. And, you know, we, we're doing some pretty awesome things at Greenlight as well. So be sure to go to www.greenlight.guru. Check out our Go product uh, for, you know, your design control risk, 
activities, but also uh, take a peek at what we're doing with our grow product uh, for those post-market activities, including some of those post-market surveillance to be able to monitor what's happening with your products once you launch it into the marketplace. And thank you once again for listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.